Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to founders, people who have built the social enterprises that are improving lives in Africa. Today, we're speaking with Lukonga Lundunda, the co-founder and CEO of Bongo Hive. Bongo Hive is Zambia's first and premier innovation and technology hub. Here's a man who spent his life trying to figure out the answer to the question of how do we build innovation for Zambia from within Zambia. Now, I know last week we spoke with Vilgro Africa, which, based out of Nairobi, represents one of the most dynamic startup environments in Africa. But what about the rest of the continent? There's so much good work to be done outside of the big names of Nigeria and South Africa. And that's why I was really excited to sit down today with Lukonga to talk about what this industry is like in the Zambian context, specifically in a low-income country with a population of about 18 million. Now, incubators and accelerators in general need to rely on a multitude of revenue streams. Bongo Hive was no different. You'll hear how Lukonga needed to cast his net wide in order to keep Bongo Hive afloat. Over the years, Bongo Hive has drawn its revenue from corporates and the public sector, startups and investors alike. And Lukonga, even though his passion has always been in the technology industry, in order to establish a foundation for Bongo Hive, they needed to start out by enabling businesses in other sectors, like agriculture, fashion, lifestyle. One example he talks through, which I found so illustrative of the difficulties of working with technology in Zambia, is the experience of early Android app developers. In Kenya and South Africa, there was this idea that you could just build a mobile app, put it out there in the Play Store, and get a million users and make a million dollars. But in Zambia, even if you built the perfect app, even if you got a million users who would pay a dollar each, when Lukonga created Bongo Hive in 2011, Google had no mechanism by which to pay app developers in Zambia. So that was an immediate showstopper for a lot of the talent in this country. Anyways, lots of tidbits in the hour ahead for those of you that are interested in the work of fostering innovations in low-income countries. But now, without further ado, let's dive in. 39 years ago, Lukonga was born at a city about four or five hours drive north of Lusaka, the capital of Zambia. He was the baby of the family, the last of five siblings, but he was lucky enough to be the first in his family to leave Zambia so that he could go to university in South Africa. There, he studied information technology at Nelson Mandela University. And then once he graduated, he worked in the nonprofit space for many years as a technology professional. Eventually, he ended up at VVOB, a nonprofit focused on strengthening education systems in Zambia. And that was where he met his future Bongo Hive co-founder, Bart. Bart and Lukonga would sit down together after work and wonder, of all the innovations they were building, of all the technology they were deploying within VVOB, how much of this was going to last? And how much would disappear once the aid funding disappeared? There were more questions than answers. My experiences and the experiences of my other co-founder, Bart, who I was working with, got us to a place where we were wondering whether the work that we were doing was, uh, and we, lo- we love to use the, word, the buzzword sustainable, right? So if you mm. solve a problem now as an, a nonprofit and you come back five years after the pro- project has, has ended, would you still find your solution working? And uh, the great thing was Bart had such great experience working on, on different continents 
um, that he was able to reflect on all the work that he had done. And, and he, he got to a point where he was also a little frustrated. <laughs> From my perspective as well, having had at that point, probably it was like five, six years of experience in the nonprofit space. I was also now thinking about how Zambians become the creators of solutions and how nonprofits become enablers of these solutions. And and it got us to a place where we were questioning what models would work so that we are not the the, cent- the center. We're not at the center of this change, but that we are creating platforms where people who have ideas or have solutions can be supported in the, I guess, the the, the inception of the ideas and the growth of the ideas, um, but that we take a back seat and we get comfortable with the fact that we are not the experts, right? And and in looking, yeah, and in looking for the platform uh, or model that would work, then we came across the model of uh, innovation hubs, which were in 2011, you know, early days on the continent. So everyone was so excited about these physical spaces where young people could get access to low-cost internet or free internet, access to a community, training, all these things. So the concept of a hub itself, I mean, just just by definition, bringing all these resources together so that the people that are accessing these resources move from one stage to the next stage. Hopefully that's progressive, right? And so at a conceptual level, it was just, you know, how do we create this space? Because we know we have, we're seeing gaps, but, you know, we can't just sit back and, and assume that someone else will come and figure out things. And so we decided, okay, let's try. Let's try this model. And that's, that was the birth of, of Bongo Hive. And from the two founders, uh, myself and Bart, we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to then meet uh, other like-minded individuals uh, who you know, also became the co-founders of Bongo Hive. So then Simone Zanzumesi joined the team. Um, and then you know, together we started building this. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's the journey that started um, from, from just that, that thought, that thinking process. So many questions, Nakanga. So many questions. You went over a lot very quickly there. Can I ask? So you mentioned the thing that got you in this space was this idea of building out the the Zambian ecosystem. And you know, I definitely get that from from an academic perspective. But for you personally, how did that need manifest itself in in your life? You know, were you working on projects where you you didn't see Zambian talent being properly used? Because it when you're in a job and you're getting a paycheck and you're comfortable, it's very easy to stay there. What was the call to action you saw in your life where you were like, hey, like I believe my Zambian countrymen need a little bit more than they're getting right now? So ha- having worked, uh, it's a good question, uh, having worked in nonprofits and uh, seen the you could say the what do you call it the power struggle? Not really. I don't call it the power oh, struggle. Oh, it is. But There's power struggles yeah. everywhere, <laughs> especially in the right? nonprofit space. So, exactly. So okay. So if you're USA, you're a USAID funded project, right? So it's you know it's, it's US taxpayers' money, right? So it has particular interests, and how that money is deployed is all based on a number of people that sit down, do whatever they can to figure out, you know, how this should be done, how it should be implemented. And then you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, okay, at which point am I part of the process, right? Uh, At which point do I take charge of this process? 
um, so that I, my voice uh, is important. And we've seen the changes and shifts over the years in how uh, development aid in the whole, you could sort of call it the industry, right? How they implement projects, and you've seen, for example, USAID and some of their, you know, strategic changes and how local partnerships should be developed and how projects should be developed with a community uh, approach and all those things. So, ten years mm-hmm. ago, we were questioning these things, like, okay, so if you're flying in from the US, how do you know exactly that you know you are solving a problem, like you said? Do you know? Yeah, do you know, right? But we're all being paid. It's a job at the end of the day. So now balancing the fact that, okay, yes, you know, I need this job versus in the long term, how as a local am I actively engaged or involved in this process of actually solving these problems? Because there's lots of money. And yes, it solves for, uh, problems in education, health, and all those things. But it was it was also really just a question of how can we as as locals be involved in this process you know as opposed to the way things ha- have been done and and having worked within ngos i i knew you know i felt it i experienced I experienced it and for me it was about now taking power from the ngos in some ways and giving it now to the people that experiencing the problems and hopefully that they can come up with long lasting solutions but again, not necessarily that you are, just, you know, conceptually saying, yeah, you know, local local solutions and local people. But it comes down to partnerships as well. And, and you will see later on when I talk about why we have 20 plus partners in the work we do, because we also recognize that there's so much that you can gain when you work together as opposed to, you know, sitting back and thinking, yeah, I know everything. You know, I have all the money, so I know I'm right to you know, I may not know everything. So how do I work with others to make sure that we do things right and also that they last a lifetime? Lukanga, I appreciate how politically correct you are as you're talking. Everyone everyone in the ecosystem has its player. And also when you look at these USAID projects, chief of party, almost always an American. You know, the main, like, yeah. where did the decisions happen? Where did, like, the core scope of the problem get decided? Usually, even today, it's a group of, white American men that are making those decisions together. And yes, the, mm-hmm. the, the winds of chain, change are there. The USAID themselves are, are pushing that change. But mm-hmm. that, that frustration that you're talking about, I, I hear it. I feel it too. And I'm, sure. and I'm really excited that you decided to do something about it. So innovation hubs sound cool. They sound amazing. And, and 2011 was very early for that to happen. You had this idea, you're going to start an innovation hub. But how do you actually start. You know, you're, you're a young man. It's not like you're sitting on a pile of cash. You need to make money. You know, you need food to eat. How do you start an innovation hub? So we hacked it. We hacked it. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, Bart and I used to work for uh, an organization called VVOBs, was a non-profit Belgian funded. Um, and there was a room. It was in the Ministry of Education, right? So the, 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 the non-profit itself had offices in the Ministry of Education, government building. And the government had, and uh, the, the building had a space which was supposed to be a, a library. And so, we simply asked that we could experiment with a model in this room, and we had the wonderful opportunity of working with a number of interns from some of the local colleges, right? So, a couple of guys who had graduated with some diplomas and certificates in in, in IT, and we we were working with them 
uh, to distribute uh, computers to colleges of education. And so the idea was, okay, we have a couple of guys in a room, and now we need to convert that room into a guinea pig (laughs) space (laughs) for a hub. All great ideas start with a couple of people in a room yeah, figuring out, exactly, okay, where right? to from here? <laughs> exactly. And prior to that, I, I went on a study tour. So I spent one week in Nairobi. So I spent oh. uh, some time with Eric Herzman at the iHub. Um, Fun. And at the same, yeah, in the same week, um, there were a number of activities. Pivot East, I remember, was being launched that week. Uh, MLab East Africa was being launched that week as well. And so there's nice. a whole lot of stuff happening that one week, and I got to interact with a number of players. So if you, if you, remember, nice. if you remember back that, that that time, you know you had your Samsungs, Nokia's, and you know all, all that all those active in the tech ecosystem. Samsung's still around. Yeah, I know, I know. Right? So <laughs> I, I, had, I, had, I had I had conversations with them, and I, I and I asked them. So if I was to start something like this in Zambia, would you support? And then they said, okay, what do you have now? And uh, again, coming from a nonprofit space, you usually come up with a proposal and get someone to fund it, right? But in the tech space, it was like you need to do something first, demonstrate that you are a community, and then, depending on the momentum that you gain, then you can get the support. So it was interesting. I, I really enjoyed the, the the feedback I got. Enjoyed in that it was straight to the point. I spoke to, I remember I spoke to Juliana uh, Rotish at that time, and she says, you know what, you can build a community just from a restaurant, right? If you can meet nice. regularly, you know, just hang out together. That's got to have some pizza community. or something. Shima. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 you know, I was there looking at this grand building and and you know, fancy whatever stuff happening. And then I was being advised, you know, you just need to start with people. Don't look at the fancy building and all this stuff. Just look at creating some consistency gathering, right? So when, when nice. I came back, that, that was the idea. I sort of have this mental model of you coming back from Nairobi being like, okay, they add it, we can do it. I can do it here. But hearing you talk exactly. about it, Lukanga, like you're very, you're, you're very humble i appreciate that you know like you're you're talking about how others encourage you and they're like well you know just start from here and that's i think very encouraging for others as well that are listening to this podcast you know there's there are many countries that don't have um the same kind of innovation hub that zambia does and and could do with one and you're right you just have to put a bunch of people in a room and get started what did you do to get started so that this is when i i met my other co-founders so the great thing was that we had the space we had a couple mm. of computers and a couple of guys. So, and was was VVOB paying your salary, or were you living off savings? Like, how were you personally paying for dinner? I had a full time job, and we managed at that time to convince VVOB that we could experiment with this hub model. Uh, we actually oh, used nice. the word knowledge knowledge center at that time, and 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 uh, we were able to experiment with it because, like I said, we had computers that we were distributing. We had uh, intern. So we layered on top of that. Uh, one of my co-founders, uh, fellow co-founders, Simon Silumesi, great tech guy, and he was super interested in just training. So our first session, he actually came in. We we okay, we met we met at the subway and had a long conversation about you know how to do this. And he was <laughs> like, "You have people, you have space. Let me come and do the training." <laughs> 
So our first <laughs> session was basically him training these interns. And then we used to do that every two weeks. Nice. So it became like an incremental approach. Like, okay, if we are going to build our hub, this uh, training, this training capacity building we need to do, we need people. Uh, we need consistency. So we run events and all those things. So every two weeks we would meet. And by nice. six months later, we had raised our first seed, seed money. So someone walked in and mm-hmm. saw what we were doing. And she was like, oh, here's, um, I remember, I think it was like 15,000 pounds. Yeah, uh, to buy some laptops, travel for a few conferences. And when we did that, we came up with a name, Bongo Hive. It took us about a month. And then <laughs> by the end of the year, Bart and I had traveled to Tech Africa Conference in, in, in South Africa, in Johannesburg, where we met Indigo Trust. And Indigo Trust heard about what we were doing. And they asked us to submit a two-page proposal, submitted it. Then they gave us, I think it was like 21 thousand pounds or something like that nice. uh, then we nice. held a huge boot, boot camp on um, mobile app development training and that was in december 2011 and then the ball started rolling a little faster because we now had some money we were running activities i remember we even had a short ted talk because juliana was in town and we were running a project on elections project so, you know, we, we did a, 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 an interesting TED Talk. But anyway. Nice. I would love we, to see that. We got to so, get that in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. So we, 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 we focus on organic growth, basically. If you were to summarize our growth initially was we knew we needed to grow a community. And so we decided we we're going to be running training programs. And as we were running those programs, that if they were good enough, the people in the room would invite their friends. And they would invite their friends, just like that. So over time, and that's why when people ask us, you know, wh- wh- why are we built like this? It's because our initial focus even now was just people. Like if the content is good, you know, it nice. will work out. And if people don't come, then we'll know that there's something wrong. <laughs> and so we, we, we're just building, yeah, we're just building and, and trying to fill the gaps along the way. And the, the, the journey of 10 years is really now figuring out what's not working and figuring out how to solve for that in a, in a very like, uh, I guess, sustainable way. Yeah. That makes sense. What was your plan of attack at the time? Like when you, when you were envisioning the, the, the business or the growth of Bongo Hive, was your idea to set it up as a nonprofit and get grant funding year to year, or or were you going to set it up as an enterprise and have a revenue stream? Like how are you envisioning that the organization would grow alongside the demand from the population. Yeah, so we we knew that we 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 wouldn't set up, uh, or at least we agreed we wouldn't set up a nonprofit because it just didn't make sense for us to be a nonprofit while supporting businesses. We need, we needed to be a business ourselves, and exp- not from an ego perspective, but also I mean there's a bit of respect as well if you are supporting businesses and businesses look at you and like, oh yeah, okay, you run a business. <laughs> okay, we believe you. As opposed right. to, oh, we just do grants. Uh, we wait for people to give us money, then we support. So we raised some funding, which was great. Uh, one story with Google. Remember when I was in Nairobi, I met with Google and I told them, you know, 
uh, ask them, you know, what would it take? And two years later, I went to uh, their Cape Town office and then I, I showed them what we were doing and we got like a $25,000 grant uh, from them. Nice. But it, it, that, that was the process. Uh, demonstrate that what we're doing was impactful and then be able to, you know, raise the kind of money to do what we're doing. And later on, we received a significant grant from Comic Relief. Uh, we changed our model significantly. And, you know, by demonstrating that we're able to work with entrepreneurs and help them be successful, we gained, you could say, a following, or we had organizations and companies now coming to us looking for the same secret source, right? And for yeah. them, then we started providing a service. Right now, we are running internal innovation, corporate innovation programs for, you know, some of the largest banks, right? So we have Steinbeck, Sanarco, these are large banks. So the model shifted because we had experimented very well and proved, proved with, of course, using donor funds and grants, uh, we, we, to prove, we had proved that the model that we were employing had impact. And now we were able to use that impact to go to clients and then be able to set up another company called Bongahive Consult, where we now build technology and innovation products and services for organizations. Yeah. Nice. There's two things I find fascinating about what you're just saying. First is the revenue stream that comes from both the aid uh, the aid sector and the private sector at the same time, like both both in parallel. I think one of the things that donors might not appreciate coming from America or from from uh, the UK is is how much of what goes on, you know, in the education market, in the health market, is driven by donor funding uh, in in the Zambian context. And to, to so to some extent, even just to tap in to the full market. Um, it makes sense to draw on both the private sector as well as the public sector through grant funding. And that's a model that I wouldn't like not it's not even common, but it's almost necessary because like that's just where the funds are. And any good business needs to look at where the where the funds and where the opportunities are. I think the other thing you're pointing at is the the necessity to generate multiple revenue streams, uh, you know, to be able to to balance those. And that helps diversify your risk. It helps you balance out when one picks up and one slows down your longevity as an organization. And again, I think in, in richer economies, people have the luxury of saying, you know, pick one thing, do one thing well, you know, build one iPod and just do that. Mm. Whereas in practice, uh, when you look at the most successful companies, uh, the most successful technology companies in Africa, a lot of them are layering on services. You know, they're not just, they're not just fintech, but like they're fintech and health tech. They're not just doing, they're not just sending you a moto. They're sending you a moto and giving you financing um, on the same application. And that's, that's necessary because of the the state of the market that you're working with. So it's, it's interesting to seeing how that, that plays out um, even for, for Bongo Hive as you're, as you're growing the organization. Mm-hmm. Were there any key pivot moments that, that stick out in your mind, like moments where you really had to question the identity of Bongo Hive? So we have a tech background. The founders have a tech background. Uh, and when we started, we were very passionate about just tech, you know, and in some ways uh, a, bit, a bit naive. I don't know if you remember, there was a, a time on the African continent where there was uh, you know, this it was a crazy time, really, where people were talking about how they could become millionaires uh, by building an app and having 
uh, that app do- downloaded and people pay one dollar. So it was like basic, right? So if I build an app, people still and, talk about uh, that. That's still a thing. I, I know, right? <laughs> like people, I, like people pay one dollar and then if one million downloaded, then I, I I'm a, a million dollar a millionaire, really. Yeah. And um, that that influenced our model in the early stages. We were training app developers. We knew that you know the smartphone. Uh, growth on the continent was, you know, um, accelerating, and also yeah. that internet uh, was becoming much more affordable and faster. Android was just coming out. Smartphones were becoming so much cheaper. There was a whole new ecosystem and yeah. a new market that's yeah. emerging. Yeah, and then biggest challenge was always payments, right? So simple things like Google wasn't paying into Zambia. So yes, so how can you be a million dollar app developer if Google can't pay you the money if people pay oh. Google, right? Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Was, so so if yeah. if you successfully get an app out there and a million people pay a million and pay $1 each for it, but you live in Zambia, there's no way for Google to write you the check for the money that they've already received for your app. Is that right? So now so now you can. But 10 years huh. ago, you couldn't. That's wild. What did they do? Did they just hold on to the money, or <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to find maybe like a, 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 um, someone, a friend, maybe registers an account in the US, and then you know the money goes there, and then they can transfer to you. So you have, you'd, have, you'd figure it out, but use that's so frustrating. But you know the average person on the street yeah. doesn't have any connections to the US or the UK or whatever. So uh, it yeah, was always a challenge. To monetize and it was about monetizing apps, right? So Google um, stole your first profits. That's what I'm hearing. But they gave you 25k, <laughs> so we can forgive them. <laughs> I know, right? But no, no the, the model was too basic, right? The assumption that mm. people would just build tech companies and and succeed is you make a lot of assumptions, uh, and these are the issues that you know we, we all deal with, especially in the nonprofit space. Anyway, dealing with issues of access right uh, and, and costs uh, so yes. the assumption that you're in Lusaka and you have uh, you you can build an app doesn't mean the 18 million Zambians can access your app right yeah. um, because how many people have smartphones how much is the cost of internet internet uh, mobile connectivity and coverage and all those things so we started dealing with the, the difficult stuff right and and our approach was now to break silos so the many opportunities and sessions and events where we had mobile uh, network providers, uh, mobile money network provide, uh, mobile money providers, banks and all those, and we would bring them uh, into one room and say, look, there are these entrepreneurs, H- how do they succeed? You know, and we, we started building a community beyond developers, right? And now looking at the ecosystem, how do we work on the ecosystem? Because you know, you, you can't do it alone. You need to work with a whole lot of other players, but also you need to recognize your role and place in the ecosystem. And that's why very early on, I think two, three years into our existence, we realized it wasn't just about this building or small room where these developers were. It's the, the tough things are things that happen outside that room. Policy, tax, oh, man. all those things, right? <laughs> right? Oh, and, man. And, and it, it was great uh, to discover those things because knowledge right once you know what you're up against that's at least at least you are in a better position and then we started trying to figure out how to solve for the silos and, and challenges and gaps in the in the ecosystem and that's why you know there was that light bulb moment for us uh, that oh you know what actually our role is in the ecosystem 
how do we huh. build and support the growth of the local ecosystem and also the regional ecosystem because it's not just about building apps anymore it's how do you build a successful business in zambia everything from how you register the business what kind of tax you pay integrations apis you know payment platforms everything how do you work with government how do you work with private sector how how does academia work with government and and, and private sector so it's thinking through everything that matters in order for an entrepreneur to succeed in the local ecosystem and the regional ecosystem so you're talking about the pivot huh? so five years i think five four five five years into what we were doing we realized mm, the tech ecosystem is just too nascent and we mm. pivoted to supporting all kinds of businesses but recognizing that technology would be a cross-cutting theme but also that we'll be patient until the time when the tech ecosystem was mature enough to be able for people to actually start businesses and raise capital. And so for mm-hmm. a number of years, we were just doing, you know, we would do we would work with agribusinesses, would work with uh, fashion businesses, you know, lifestyle. And, you know, we just, we just spread out. We just like, okay, you know what? Zambians, Zambian businesses need support. We shouldn't focus on this niche market of these tech startups. Um, and what, what we did in those years helped us to just learn, learn more about supporting businesses right and not not get too caught up with this whole unicorn story this whole uh, how do we make millionaires right to how do we build sustainable businesses in zambia and now in the past two years three years particularly with covid and how it's accelerated the tech scene now you know when we see some startups raise capital millions you know one business, Zambian business got into Y Combinator. When you begin to see tech startups now get to a point where they're growing teams, uh, raising capital, then you know, now we know that, okay, we were on track 10 years ago, but now is the time to get back to our tech roots and double down on tech because now the, the ecosystem is ready. Right? So those are the pivots we've had to take over the years. And I was actually talking to some of my staff uh, the other day about this, that uh, when when deciding what to work on, we have to always think about the long term. That the client now or an organization that we work with that won't recognize tech, we must find a way of working with them at their pace so that three, four years from now, they'll be like, now we get it. And when they get it, that we will be there to work with them. Nice. Fascinating. So many interesting things in what you've said. Just on your last point about bringing clients into tech, I was recently speaking to a woman on the senior leadership team of a 5,000 person international nonprofit. And she was saying that whatever business you're in, you're a digital marketing business. Like every business, every business of significance above a certain size uh, has an online presence and needs to own that, needs to retain that. And if you don't realize it, you're not going to be in business in five or 10 years. And she was absolutely right. And the services that you're talking about are recognizing that like this is the way the world is headed. But I, I think the example that you gave about how the ecosystem wasn't ready at the time that you were going into this, it's fascinating to hear because certainly there are incubators, there are startups that just focus on building apps, you know, if they have the luxury to do that in a developed market. But you cannot do that in Zambia. Like you have to look at the whole picture, the big picture. And you shifted Bongo Hive in such a way that you could expose yourself to that 
learning to understanding like what are the core business enablers and then how does technology play a role inside of all of that. Last question for you, Akanga, is there is there one or two key gaps in the ecosystem that through your through your journey, through your learning, through your whole career that you've invested in enabling tech startups in Zambia? Looking at the ecosystem, like what are some of the key gaps that still remain to be bridged? One is that we do continue to work in silos. And things have changed now. We have a new administration. So there's a whole lot more conversations and platforms that have been set up uh, for us to talk together, work together. I always think that's one of the disadvantages, some, something that hasn't, that puts us at a disadvantage versus more mature ecosystems. Just the ability for everyone to see the big picture, have common understanding, right, and alignment about what our roles are and being able to align and actually work together so that there is not a, and, and, and this is something we've suffered a lot, a lot of hubs, right, that hubs become the, the savior of the ecosystem. And we tend to disagree <laughs> with that. Like there's too much responsibility. You got your work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, right? Like it's too much responsibility placed on under-resourced hubs. They, they will not solve for all the problems in the ecosystem. Hubs are only a piece, a part. And so being able to work together, uh, recognizing the role of government, public, public sector, you know, private sector, academia, you know, startups and all this, that's important. And I think that's, that's where we're getting to. And that's what, you know, is one of the missing pieces. The other one, uh, one of the gaps is always, you know, it's financing piece. And we always say this multi-stage financing. And that's the conversation. The conversation is not just about startups need, need money. The next part of the conversation, stage of the conversation is, what can we provide the right amount type of financing for, for startups or SMEs or whatever you want to call them? But moving the conversation beyond just bundling everything and saying, oh, we, you know, businesses need financing to, you know what, where are the angels? Let's set up that angel network. Where are the VCs? Where are the PEs? You know, uh, all, all the platforms and, this, and also grants, you know, uh, where, where's government fin- financing in all these things? And it's, you know, that, that's where the, we're getting to. But again, for me, once you can really identify the gaps and, uh, and, and quantify them, but beyond just the general conversation, being very specific, um, I, I think that that will unlock more opportunities in the market because going back to the first uh, answer I gave, then different institutions will know exactly who they are targeting, what kind of financing they can provide to them, and we can avoid this whole conversation that banks don't give money to startups. And, you know, all yeah, so I think those two for me are, 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 are big. Couldn't agree more. It's funny, I think some objections might say, you know, just, you know, throwing cash at a problem. Like, I don't know if that's like the right way to approach development. But we're not even talking about development here. If you look at startups in Silicon Valley and Israel, they also are looking for cash. They need that runway in order to build the software that will change the world tomorrow. And obviously, if you're a tech startup with a brilliant idea in Zambia, you need cash just like anyone in Silicon Valley does. And the mountain you need to climb is much harder uh, than the ones that they're climbing. And so cash is a key enabler, particularly when we talk about the technology economy and how do we get started. Lakanga, is there anything else you'd like to highlight just about the work that Bongo Hive is doing or some of the achievements uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, um, you know, we were the first innovation hub in, in Zambia. And 
what we are working at now is getting Zambia to be the, the innovation hotspot in the region. And we are aligned with, you know, what the new administration is talking about, what other uh, players are talking about. I think there's a real opportunity for us to be able to stand out in the region and to get startups from Zambia you know, growing into the region, but also get African and regional startups to come set up in Zambia so that they can grow from here. And that, that for me, is what we are focused on. We've always been focused on it. And you know, now is a good time to be able to double down on that. That's, that's where we're getting to us. Always talk, tell people that you know, that's our grand vision. You know, it's not just about Bongo Hive, it's not about Lusaka, but now it's you know, how do we make this country the hotspot of innovation uh, in the region? Yeah. Nice. With the few minutes that we have left, Lukanga, we're going to switch over to our rapid fire questions that we use to wrap up the show. First question for you is whether you have any feedback for donors or investors who want to support the Zambian tech ecosystem. How can they channel financing most effectively today? I think the first thing uh, when external players come into the ecosystem, in any ecosystem, is just find out what's happening, plug in to the players that are already there. Instead of uh, creating new structures, it's it's, uh, recognizing, respecting what's been done so far and look at ways ways in which you can accelerate what's already been done. And that's where you put your money, right? Not in necessarily new projects, right? But it's an identifying the the the, the shining light, you know, the, the bright spots and being able to double down on those because they're certainly there. And that's where you can, I think, donors and others should place their money in. Yeah, yeah. donors love their shiny new projects. And often forget to invest in the ones that are doing great work and just need a little bit to pay their operating costs. Yeah. On the advice front, if you could take a step back in time and speak to Lukanga of 10 years ago, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, I would say, guard your heart. <laughs> um, and the only, yeah, and look, I think the only reason is, you know, lots of entrepreneurs are passionate about what they do. But the business world isn't as forgiving. <laughs> it's tough yeah. out there. And when I when I mean guarding, it's it's the balance between yes, you are passionate about this, and you think because you are so passionate about it, things are going to work out. On the other hand, you know you actually make yourself so vulnerable that when mm. there are shocks, things don't go your way, or you don't achieve what you meant to achieve that can really hit you hard. So it's finding a way to be resilient, to protect yourself. And, you know, it takes wisdom and all those things. But uh, I think one thing I can always advise someone, you know, like a younger version of me is uh, early on to be open-minded and realize that the shocks will happen, the bad things will happen. No matter how, how good your intentions are, be prepared for the stuff that just won't make sense, that will kill your passion, will attempt to kill your passion, but find ways of managing that. Uh, but going into this space or any space thinking that, you know, because you are passionate and you've got that idea and that business, things are going to work out, you know, that that for me is one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs make. Yeah. Lukanga, what was your moment of heartbreak? So, and I think you've heard a bit, talked a bit about uh, how, 
uh, even Bongo Hive is about people, right? Yeah. And for me, the heartbreak, the first time that I had a significant number of people transition away from Bongo Hive. Yeah, that's so tough. That, yeah, that, that for me, and it was, and, and the funny thing is, uh, oh, not funny, but uh, one of the things that I tell people that in the work that we do, it is not that you will have bad things happening only. The moments which are most difficult are when there are bad things and good things happening at the same time. Oh my God, and I remember that sounds so stressful. When, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And I remember um, when we hosted Prince Harry, right? Wow. I had three of my team members. Yeah, I had three of my team members who were actually leaving at that time. So yes, I'm excited. And these are like senior staff who had transitioned, you know, to... Um, bigger, better opportunities. And so when, when on one hand, we were like hosting like Prince Harry and, you know, like, yeah, you know, we're having a good time. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but you know, how do I fill these gaps at the oh, same man. time? And, 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 and for me, that that's, that's the tough one. You know, I can handle, yeah. I think most people can handle like bad things. They're like, oh yeah, you know, cry and, you know, do, do all those things or happy moments where you can really be happy. But when everything happens at the same time, then, you know, it's like a, weird uh, thing going on in, in your mind and your body. Yeah. The compartmentalization that must require. Whew, that sounds intense. Yeah. Nakango, yeah. would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Actually, two. They're all in the hub, hub space. Eric Hesman was very instrumental in the early stages of Bongo Hive. And uh, more recently, yeah, for a long time now, Bosun uh, Tijani of uh, co-creation hub in Nigeria has been very inspirational. We look up to him, we ask him for advice, we collaborate on some things. Uh, he's, he's really a great guy. Yeah. Nice. Life hack. What's one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective, productive, and or motivated? So I, I do other things and I used to do it more consistently. What? Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Apart from working? I, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, so I, I, I play a couple of musical instruments and I, I, I used to be very active. And the reason why I'm using used to be because, you know, over the past two years I was doing an MBA, which was taking up most of my time. But I was part huh. of a choir, uh, playing drums. No way. Um, no and way. I've been playing drums for about, yeah, for about 20 years. So Wow. That disconnect from work, like I would be at work and then I would get into a choir rehearsal and, you know, you, you're trying to master a song and, you know, all these things. It's like that disconnect, if I call it that, that change was it's, it's a, it's a bit, one of the best things I've ever had to do consistently in life because you you, you can in, I, I get my mind to be focused on something else totally. So that by the time I come back to work, I'm probably thinking a little differently, you know, um, I've got fresh eyes or fresh mind. But I always encourage people uh, and my staff when they join, say, look, you can't just be working, you know, like do something else, you know. <laughs> yeah. but, and so for me, that, that that's my hack, like do something else apart from work. You can, you can have a much more balanced life. Yeah. And they say music actually does make you smarter. So maybe that's working for you as well. Lukonga, yeah. you have to send us a link to a recording that you've done. We have to put it in the show notes. We got to get this side of your personality out there in the world. I'm not, that's not even a request. That's just like a demand. <laughs> sure. Last question. And this one is just for fun. If you can recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time. There's, there's one book I read uh, earlier in the year called The Courage to be Disliked. Interesting. Are you applying that now? 
<laughs> no, no the, it's it's a very it's a Japanese book huh. and it really helps center you as a leader uh, because just by the phrase the courage to be disliked we tend to want to do things right okay some of us at least all the time oh not not right but we always want to be liked there are some people like me who want to be liked you know a leader and you you know you, everyone in the organization must like you um, but this this book really helps navigate scenarios uh, or environments where it's okay to be disliked. Uh, not to be hated, <laughs> but to be disliked. That makes sense. You have to do that at some point. It's a really useful book. For sure. For people in the audience who want to learn more about Bongo Hive, what's the best way to find out more? So we're on all major social platforms, just writing the word. TikTok. Snapchat. Yeah. Oh, no. okay. Not, not, not. <laughs> it's the future, Lukanga. It's the future. <laughs> uh, yeah. But if, you, if you look for Bongo Hive, one word, B-O-N-G-O-H-I-V-E, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and our website is bongohive.co.za. And on YouTube as well. Some of our content is on YouTube and Instagram. Nice. <laughs> I mean, you got to be on Instagram these days. Thank you so much for taking the time out today, Lukanga, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. That's so much fun. Hope you enjoyed the show today and this glimpse into the trials and tribulations of building the technology sector in Zambia. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like what you heard today, we're always welcoming positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. One quick life update from me. I'm actually on the road at the moment drifting between Toronto and New York City. So please, have a little patience with me. The show will be back in about a month or so, once I'm back in South Africa. Until then, take care. We'll chat again soon. <laughs>